0: Strawhut Media. Andres Hernandez immigrated with his mother from Colombia to Michigan when he was just eight years old. Nine years later, in 2005, 17-year-old Andres enlisted in the military. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was the law of the land, and the U.S. was at war in the Middle East. George W. Bush was serving his second term as president. Throughout his 12 years of active duty, Andres built his military career as a combat engineer. His job was to find improvised explosive devices, also known as IEDs, in Afghanistan and disarm them, keeping both soldiers and civilians safe. But on tour, he couldn't be open about being gay. At home, people didn't understand what it was like to be at war. So what was it like to occupy that space, and what comes next? I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride.
1: Uh, my name is Andres Hernandez, and I was in the military for about 12 years. I'm currently a consultant. Live here in Los Angeles, California.
0: Andres first joined the National Guard at 17. Mostly, he said, just to get away from home.
1: Just to pay for my school, have kind of my own life, and that was the quickest way I could think of doing it. Uh, I grew up in a very conservative household, so that was also kind of one of the more likely options that were kind of presented at the time. Um, So when I joined, you know, I, I had this image in my head of what the military would be like, where I would go explore the world and actually, um, you know, I had some patriotism. Uh, I was born in Colombia and immigrated to the U.S. when I was eight years old. And so there was there was something in there about giving back to my country, you know, And I and I thought I would be doing these amazing things. And I said, well, let me start with the National Guard, which is kind of a part-time reserve status, and then see where I want to
0: take this. Andres went off to boot camp.
1: And like, immediately I was like, this is awesome. People are doing so many like heroic, amazing things. And I, like one of my first phone calls I got to make home, I was like, mom, I think I'm gonna volunteer to go to Iraq. And she like started crying. She's like, don't do that. Just stick to your plan. Your plan was to like, you know, finish, do school first and then figure out how much you like the military and then go from there.
0: So, he stuck with the plan, he stayed part-time through college, and then joined ROTC. In case you're wondering, ROTC stands for Reserve Officers Training Corps.
1: ROTC, for, you know, if you don't know what it is, it's the program that um, kind of transforms, you know, a civilian into a military officer. So, it, it like, combines, uh, like, the physical part of it with, um, like, Army history, or, you know, just, I guess, general military history or tactics and strategy. So I joined in 2005, uh, became an officer in 2010, and then Don't don't Tell was repealed in 2011 or 2012. And then um, pretty much made my way up through 1st Lieutenant and then Captain.
0: A career in the military can take a lot of different shapes. There are five branches of the U.S. military. The Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Coast Guard. Within those five branches, there are millions of jobs. Some positions deploy and see combat, some don't.
1: When I commissioned the military, I went into engineering, combat engineering, which, um, you know, at first is just, you know, building and bridges and structure, it also includes explosives, so I thought I wanted to go into the construction side of it. My d- degree is in construction management, so I thought I wanted to do that. And then, you know, this is I guess kind of the theme you'll notice about my military career is I I say I want to go do like the tamer thing, and then I end up like jumping headfirst into the other. So I ended up really liking combat engineering, which is explosives, and ended up leading a unit. Um so a platoon in twenty twelve, uh in the southern region of Afghanistan looking for bombs and IDs on the road and pretty much blowing them up so that like fall on forces could come behind and drive safely or that, you know, kids wouldn't find them and um get affected by the blast or you know, et cetera. So just take them off the battlefield. So that was my job there. Um so I did that for a year. It was a pretty hard year.
0: Andres experienced things that made it hard for him to relate to the people he loved back home.
1: I mean, I vividly remember um, this experience on my birthday where, the, you know, there were two vehicles that crashed in the middle of the road. I mean, the road system in Afghanistan is non-existent, to say, to put it nicely. And, uh, like you know, there was this small little truck with a bunch of kids in the back and like it rolled over. So there's like hurt kids that I had to go and like you know, make a decision of like should we continue our mission to like go clear bombs off the road is it going to delay somebody's schedule or do we help literally dying kids right now. Um and so we're like yeah, no, everyone's like in agreement immediately let's help these kids. Um so we had a really tough time just dealing with the politics of like we can't bring civilian like Afghan civilians into our base and all this stuff. So, you know, I, it was a very tough day for me it happened to be my birthday. So it was memorable because of, I was already, you know, kind of thinking about my experience that day. And, um, I just put it all in an email that night and like press send and like zero context. Right. Like in my mind, it was just like another day at work. And I made a tough decision that day. It was a tough day at work, but it was just another day at work.
0: In retrospect, Andres realized there was a space between life on tour and life at home, and he hadn't figured out how the two connected yet.
1: You know, he's at work, you know, doing creative, like, you know, ad magazine type of work and receives an email like his one email a week from his boyfriend that's deployed and it's all about like there's dying kids, right? So that that's immediately very upsetting.
0: Andres led a larger company that did combat engineering for another three years.
1: And then I, I felt like I had enough. I just wanted to have some of my weekends back and travel a little more and not kind of be so tied to the military. So I decided to leave, um, 2018. So I guess last year, but you know, the initial kind of thought process was after 12 years, you know, I would get out and, you know, maybe see what it was like and see if I enjoyed not being in the military. And then, you know, if I felt like, oh, I, I there's more work that I need to do, I'd go back in and finish eight years and then get retirement out of it. But right now, I feel like I'm not going back. (laughs) This is great. I'm enjoying my time off. Surfing. (laughs) Yeah, surfing, going around the world, traveling. Yeah.
0: That is a huge jump from being like, I'm going to be saved. I'm just going to build buildings. Yeah. To be like, no, I'm going to go find all the explosives on the road and blow them up.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think there's something about the the military indoctrination process that makes you want to be like as uh, just... Put yourself out there as much as possible, which, you know, I guess looking back on it, you know, a little more soberly, um, you know, a little more reflective. um It's just be, what being young is, right? Like you, you go and you think, well, oh, I'll just test it out. And then something exciting comes along. You're like, yeah, I want to do the exciting thing. I, I didn't join the military to like sit behind a desk. Right. So, yeah, let's go blow up bombs, you know. So you kind of get accustomed to like seeking that out a lot. And it's kind of hard to stop. And I think that's why people make a career out of it because it's, yeah, let's, let's go do this more exciting thing and it just never ends. I think military service is a mixed bag for a lot of people. You know, I think everyone that asked the question initially kind of expects a very stock response from service members, but it depends on what you did, right? Some people join the military, come out with a lot of shame and they don't feel that way. They don't feel like their work was important or they feel like they actually hurt society in some way, right? Other people feel that, um, you know, the, that they're, the U.S. is right to do X, Y, and Z in the world and they feel very strongly about it. And, you know, they just feel like they have to keep spousing some ideas and, you know, kind of do military-adjacent things for the rest of their life. Um, so it's it's a mixed bag. Some people... Honestly, go to combat zones and never see any combat. Um, right? They, they're finance people. And so their experience is very different than somebody that's an infantry person or a combat engineer blowing a bomb. So for me, I, I, I felt um, not grateful is the right word, but um, very fortunate that what I did, I feel like was dangerous, but also helped people so i felt like i have these this cool action story but i you know i am grateful to say like i didn't go out there to hurt anybody right but that my my that story could have been very different right
0: even before andres officially finished his commitment to the military there were periods of time when he came home from active duty and went back into the reserves when he returned he struggled to figure out how to get back to regular civilian life
1: when i got back from afghanistan you know and I went back into like a reserve status. So I would go to training one week in a month and then two weeks um, during the summer or two to three weeks during the summer straight. And then you know my regular civilian career would continue. So I worked for a construction company during procurement. And I remember getting there and thinking that nothing would ever be as important as what I was doing in Afghanistan. You know, like taking a bomb off a road and saving somebody's life that would have ran over it is not going to measure up to like buying steel on a construction project and so i would go on these like i would have like little panic attacks of like i this is the rest of my life and it seems so not meaningful and i would like leave work and go on these walks and just think about like what am i doing with my life why am i doing this you know and later come to find out that's exactly what post-traumatic stress is is that feeling and you know so you know would get prescribed like ritalin so i could focus on work because otherwise i would just think about how meaningless it was and then xanax at night so i could like calm down and go to bed so i mean luckily i was treated and like i knew to kind of go to the va and like i knew what the signs were i knew that that wasn't normal and so you, you know with it treated, you kind of get through that pretty quickly. For me, it was about six to eight months. And then now I'm like, oh yeah, now I go to work and I'm like, this is the most important thing in the world. You know, I get stressed about work just like anybody else. Yeah, so um, yeah, it was very, very stressful, kind of, you know, looking for bombs and then reintegrating. When I first got to Afghanistan, we do this process called like um, right seat, left seat where you shadow the unit that you're taking over, right? Cause there's already somebody there doing the job you're about to do. So you shadow them for a week. Um, And then you take over and they stay along just to make sure that you're running things as they would have, or they're giving you advice on different areas or different routes that you have to clear. So my first day, at When I took over, my vehicle got blown up and, you know, like I pretty much had to act on the spot. Like, you know, I'd only been in country for about a week. And while that was very stressful um, in the moment and, you know, your, your adrenaline kicks in and kind of takes care of the stress. Um, but the reason I start this story with that moment is because the stress came about a year later, right? So when I got home and it was hard integrating back into like a civilian workplace, you know, I didn't really know how to talk to my boyfriend at the time anymore. Uh, we were both very cold with each other. Um, you know, I lived in New York city and I felt like I didn't really have any friends that understood me. Uh, I had a, pretty much acknowledge that there was a problem, go to like the VA and check myself in and say, Hey, I think I need like mental health um, counseling or something to get me through like what I'm feeling. I, I can't even describe it. Right. So like, you know, in one hand you have something that happens in a combat zone that's very stressful. And I think everyone expects me to say that's the most stressful thing, but that's what your training is for that. Like I knew how to handle it in the moment and. Maybe I made some bad decisions in that moment, but there was a, a unit effort and everybody kind of had everyone's back and you kind of go through the emotions. What I wasn't prepared for is like after having gone through so much of that, that it changes you is how to become myself again uh, on the other side of it, especially because, you know, because of being deployed and kind of segregating my personal life from my military life. You know, I had a lot of issues where I just didn't share a lot at the moment. And, and it was, I think that was the most stressful is coming back and navigating, um, how, to, how to have a social life again, how to be functioning at work again. All those things were really hard.
0: Just how to be a civilian,
1: how to be a c- person really like, you know, cause part of it was just like how to show intimacy with your boyfriend. Right how to not just get out of bed and like move on with your life and instead like sit there and cuddle or you know how to stay at your desk and keep doing your job when you're just like this doesn't matter just doesn't matter just doesn't matter right and like i i feel that today but that's something else right that's just what we all go through which is just you know points in our career that we're like, oh, yeah, like, why am I doing this? But no, this was serious. Like, why am I doing this? Like, this does not matter, you know? And so, I mean, that's why uh veteran suicide rate is extremely high because when they get home, they do not know how to carry on. Right. And they, they feel like nobody understands them. There's nobody out there. And so, you know, I think identifying that early on and kind of Seeking help was very hard, but it was the best thing I could have done for myself. Like, I mean, um, I put a lot of emphasis in, into feeling better. Like, you know, I had a counselor that would recommend books and I would read them in like a book. And I'm sorry, I would read them in a week just trying to make sure that I got better. But not everyone kind of has that understanding of what it is that they're going through.
0: Do you still have those moments or are they gone?
1: Um, No, I would generally say they're gone. I think I still have those moments in the same way like anybody has those moments, right? In the same way that uh, we all go through a normal ups and downs of life. Uh, But I I really don't think that any of them anymore are military related. And it's funny. um, So a few years after I got back from my deployment... I was going through some relationship stuff with a boyfriend of mine at the time. And he brought it up. He's like, are you going through post-traumatic stress? And, you know, I couldn't tell the difference. What was relationship stress? Or if it was really me still going through post-traumatic stress. And so I didn't want to take any chances. So I went and got help again. And um, about five visits and uh, the counselor I was seeing at the time was like, you don't have anything. This is, you're actually very well adjusted. This is either this person gaslighting you or, you know, you're just going through normal relationship drama and you seem to be taking care of just fine. So it was like this moment of like, okay, it was a a good check-in of like, I you know, I don't, I want to make sure like, I don't have any mental health issues. And, you know, somebody telling me, no, you're just, that's what relationships are, They're work. And, you know, everyone goes a little crazy when they're going through something tough in a relationship. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty confident that, you know, and I think because I can't speak to it now that I, it's, I don't have anything kind of lingering and most post-traumatic stress is very treatable. And if treated immediately after your stressful experience, um, can be gone. Like, forever. So, you know, I I think it's something that is just important to put out there. So whether it's military service or any other stressful event, you know, seeking help can actually just solve it. Like, it's not something that people have to carry on and and live with for years and years.
0: A recent report from the Department of Veterans Affairs showed that at least 60,000 U.S. veterans died by suicide between 2008 and 2017. And the suicide rate for veterans in 2017 was 1.5 times the rate for non-veteran adults. After talking to Andres, I wanted to know what advice he would give, not just to a queer person coming out of the military, but anyone making the transition from being a soldier to being a civilian.
1: My advice for people um, that either are trying to come out or have a, you know a kind of a career situation is to actually just. Bring people on board, you know, like when you're on a ship by yourself out there, when you're kind of build the walls that I did, but at the time, you're just making it harder, right? Like bring as many people on board. They're going to help you. You have a point of reference. uh, Don't be afraid to ask for help. I mean, I know, you know, the Internet's a great resource. I mean, if you're coming out, there's hotlines out there, right? There's things you can read about. There's coming out stories um, if you're LGBT in the military there's organizations like Modern Military Association of America that you know you can reach out to there's a lot of resources and I just say tell people to don't be afraid to use them that's what they're for um it it's usually when people don't seek help or don't or, or try to go at it themselves um, where I think people stumble
0: When we come back, we'll hear about Andres' experience serving in the military during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell era, and how it changed after it was repealed. Plus, Andres opens up about coming out to his unit. The US military didn't officially restrict LGBTQ service members from serving until the mid-20th century, but as far back as the Revolutionary War, being caught engaging in homosexual acts could result in being discharged or court-martialed. Then, in the years leading up to World War II, for the first time military regulations officially cited homosexuality as a reason to bar someone from military service. Still, hundreds of thousands of queer Americans served their country and kept their sexual identities secret. If they were outed, they would be discharged, lose their benefits, or worse. Even through the gay rights movement of the 1970s, the ban remained intact, and in 1981, the Department of Defense reaffirmed it and went on to discharge almost 17,000 men and women under the homosexual category. Then, during Bill Clinton's presidential campaign in 1992, he promised to end the ban on gay people serving in the military. The following year, he introduced Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And the year after that, it went into effect.
1: You know, the Clinton administration Today gets a lot of flack for it, for passing it, but essentially it was a compromise at the time that said, well, you can serve and be gay, so you don't have to deal with um, kind of being accused and then just getting out. But if you're serving, you can't tell anybody, but we also won't ask.
0: Even after Barack Obama repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2011, coming out as a queer service member was not so easy
1: yeah i I couldn't tell anybody in my unit that I was gay. I mean, I guess I could have, but I didn't choose to share that. I think it would have muddied a lot of stuff up and I think I w- my job was so stressful, right? like literally uh looking for bombs. like my vehicle got hit with an ID in my first week in Afghanistan. and so I didn't want to have to think about something else. I didn't want to have to think about how people are going to react once they find out I'm gay because that's extra stress. I didn't need at the moment. It was more like, I just want to go to work and be sharp and, you know, hope that, you know, if, when shit hits the fan like that, I can react in a way that nobody dies. Like that's, that was, it. that was the mindset. And so, you know, Telling somebody I had a boyfriend back home was just not an option for me at the moment. And I, you know, I think that's different for a lot of people. Some people really to get through that hard time need that support system. And I I would say that's true for me today. Like I would want them to know and know that there's somebody back home. But in the moment, my decision was it's just easier to leave to block that out. And, you know, I think. My year in afghanistan was a lot like when i was coming out which was i just did a mental block right so when i was coming out like i would go watch gay porn right and then i would go back into society and lie to myself and say i'm probably just going through some stuff i'm straight and i would just block that like I didn't you know a lot of people describe like coming out as such an internal struggle for me it wasn't because I just lied to myself it was just such a block mental block that I like a wall I built around this thing called being gay and you know I think my deployment to Afghanistan was the same way it was just like this wall I built around my deployment setting that just no other part of my life is going to get into Looking back on it now, um, that's why I try to keep myself involved. Um, so I'm on the advisory board for Modern Military, which is kind of bridging the military and LGBT communities together. Because you know, if you're LGBT in the military, like you can't get out of either, right? Like you're gay, you have to make sure the community accepts you. You're you might have kids that are going to schools and they could get being bullied, right? Um, if you're trans, there's you know Trump has a ban against trans people serving currently. So this organization goes out and tries to fight all those issues, tries to legally fight the administration on the trans ban, tries to create communities that are more inclusive towards the kids of LGBT parents or LGBT kids in military communities. Um, so I felt like that was very important just because of my experience specifically being deployed and having, um, you know, a loved one back home that couldn't be as involved. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of work to do, but I'm grateful of how far I think the, in the last like 10 years we've come. I mean, 10 years ago, I couldn't tell, like I was, I could get blackmailed. Right, if somebody found out I was gay, I could, I would lose everything in the you know that I worked for in the military, you know now at least, um, yes, there are issues, there are, there are challenges, but. Like, there are some legal protections.
0: Even though Don't Ask, Don't Tell ended in 2011, it brought up a lot of other complications. Heterosexual spouses of service members are entitled to certain legal protections. They can visit their spouse in the hospital, they are informed about important things while their spouse is deployed, and they can be granted power of attorney in case of a tragedy. So even though a service member could be openly queer, their partner still likely wouldn't receive the same benefits as opposite gender spouses.
1: Um, so there's a lot of things that the military had to figure out in those years. and so the culture wasn't also caught up to date, right? So in 2012 when I got deployed, even though um, I could be out, the family readiness groups that like helped those staying back um, weren't the most supportive at the time. They, you know, still had a lot of issues. So luckily, I think, a lot of that's come a long way and been a lot better.
0: So, what was your experience in the military like before it was repealed, and then after?
1: When I was in school, when I was in college, I can't remember the exact year. I want to say it was like 2007, right? So the Don't Ask, Don't Tell was the law, and I was dating this guy. We, you know, had a breakup. Um, you know, at the time, I was also just. Coming out and trying to figure out who I was, so I probably didn't deal with the breakup in the most mature way because I'm, you know, a stupid 18-year-old, and my ex at the time decided that, you know, he he wanted to stay in this relationship, and the way he was going to do it was to threaten to out me to the military if I didn't get back together, right, or to threaten to pick me up at military events, you know, and tell me to get in the car, right, or he'd cause a scene, so, I felt like I was in this place of like, if I don't do what he's saying, like, I'm going to lose um, my career in the military. Right. So, it, like, I had to like call lawyers to try to figure out the situation. Luckily, it de escalated itself. And I think, you know, he was also a dumb 18 year old and just figured out that, yeah, what I'm doing is stupid right now. Let's stop doing that. Right. Uh, but that could have gotten. A lot worse, right? And I don't know what protections I would have had. You know, it would have been that the issue's out there, and I would have been separated from the military, and that would have been the end, and this podcast would have never happened, right? Um, versus, you know, after Don't Ask, do Tell was repealed, I think it was more about is the unit that I'm a part of going to be accepting and even if they're not, I still have some protections, right? They can't, you know, put me in a different position because I'm gay, because I can fight that, you know, go to an IG and fight that, right? Um, And so it wasn't so much that I'm going to lose my career. It was, will I have, will I be accepted in this community, right? And so um, towards the last few years, um, you know, like 2014 to when I left in 2018, you know, I'd been to combat, uh, I was a company commander, and I felt like I had a lot of respect. And so the issue was more about how are they gonna react once I introduce them to
0: somebody? That moment came in 2016 when Andres introduced his boyfriend Max to his army unit.
1: It's when I got promoted to captain, he came to the ceremony and pinned on my captain rank. And it was great. I mean, everyone was so nice to him. Um, you know, people that are extremely conservative, um, that I'd heard them say just how awful anything progressive is, right? Like they just, the last people I would ever ex- expect to embrace somebody, um, that's LGBT. They were so nice to max. They would ask about him, right? Like it, it was just a total reversal of like, So my expectations were greatly exceeded both by my unit and then just like, you know, looking back on it, I don't know if it was my fears or if everything did come such a long way. So I think it was a little both like, you know, I was probably more afraid than I should have been at the time. But also, I think these people really came around. And I think part of it is, you know, seeing somebody that had done the thing for a year, had fought the same battles and. You know, I think they asked themselves, like, um, I can't treat this guy any differently. Like, he actually is one of us, right? And so, I I think it actually helped them come along to being more accepting. So, it was great. I mean, but before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I would have never seen that. I, You know, I couldn't have imagined introducing a boyfriend to my unit.
0: What made you decide, like, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to introduce him. Like, was there a moment?
1: I had boyfriends uh prior to max while I was in the military you know I, I told them hey these are probably two lives that need to be kept separate right like I'm gonna be at home with you and we can start a family and then I go to my military thing and I don't know how that's gonna work out and so for now let's not mix the two right and a lot of times they weren't you know, very, they didn't receive that very well, but they accepted it because they loved me. And because, you know, the relationships are early and we wanted to see what would happen. Max is very like outgoing and he's a go-getter. Like, you know, he, he goes after what he wants. And, you know, at the moment he said, no, this is not acceptable. This is your life. I want to be involved in all of it. You know, don't ask until is not an issue. So this is your BS. This isn't you know, a law anymore. This is you not trusting that this is going to work out. And he was right. Like I just had to make the jump and just trust that he, you know, is extremely charming and will win them all over. And that's exactly what happened. Right. So, you know, I remember being so nervous and part of it is because I was running a unit. And so like my boss was coming and it was a ceremony for me to get promoted so it was also a big moment for me so I wanted everything to like go so smoothly and I was so nervous that I just kept messing everything up like I I remember like giving people wrong times to be places and you know I was just a mess and then you know introducing you know I would just I wouldn't say my boyfriend I'm like oh this is Max it was just funny you know and I remember getting pinned and promoted in that ceremony wherever met Max and giving a speech. And I don't know what I said. Like I, my, I have a mental block of anything I said. And I, I think I just rambled. And then I actually remember Max being like, what was that? Like, he's like, this is my first time seeing you in like a military format and giving like a military speech. And I thought it'd be more cohesive than that. And I just remember being like, yeah, I don't know what happened to me either. Like I was so nervous. You know, um, luckily, he's seen me interact in military settings after that and gains a little more confidence. Uh, but it was great. I mean, looking back on it, it's a gracer, but that night I was a nervous wreck.
0: Before the pinning ceremony, his military colleagues had a chance to get accustomed to Andres and Max as a couple.
1: So he did a YouTube video called Meet My Boyfriend about three months prior where he introduces me and says he's never come out to anybody in the military. Um I believe it's still up and so I t- just described that I, you know, I'm a consultant in New York, but I also am a reservist in the military and I've never told anybody in the military that I'm gay and I guess with this video it's out there so whoever finds it is going to know, right? And I don't know how, but a month later, I was getting text messages from my soldiers being like, Hey, that video is going around our unit. Everyone's watching it. Uh, just wanna know we we got your back. And if you know, there were kind of lower enlisted, uh, younger people. So like the younger people that I oversee, like I'm their boss, right? So like of course they're gonna be like, Hey, I'm supportive. Um, you know, and they're younger, so it's it's a little easier when somebody's like twenty years old and you know, I'm in my late 20s, right? And today, it's, they're probably pretty gay friendly. Uh, I was more worried about my superiors. And so that was the first time, like, my superiors knew. And I made it very, like, I put a face to it, right?
0: Even though it's slow, the military is making progress towards minimizing discrimination against some queer service members. There was progress made for trans people when Obama ended the ban on transgender people in the military in 2016. However, Trump's March 2018 memorandum set the LGBTQ plus community back again.
1: Trans service members definitely have a a tougher, I think, road ahead um, than what gay service members had in some respects. Um, You know, the current administration has just a total block of uh, trans service. Um, And I think it's important to note that trans people have always served in the military, right? And so it's not whether they can do their job or they can't. It's whether they can be allowed to continue doing the job. So I personally don't know anybody that is... um, in like the units that i've served so i can't speak on like a a personal kind of military relationship level but i've met a lot of people through different organizations that have either served or are trying to serve um that are are getting kicked out because of the current policies in place right now um you know and it's simple like if you can do the job if you want to do the job you should be allowed to do the job right like It shouldn't be based on anything else. It shouldn't be based on gender. It shouldn't be based on sexuality, right? Or anything else.
0: Today, Andres lives in Los Angeles, working as a consultant and staying involved in groups that help bridge the gap between the LGBTQ plus community and the military. So where can Pride listeners connect with you?
1: Pride listeners can connect with me on Instagram or Twitter. On Instagram, I'm Andres Camilo, and then three underscores. Um, And then on Twitter, it's Andres, three underscores, and Camilo.
0: Perfect. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. Yep, it's at Pride. That simple. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. In just those years of pulling bombs off roads, like you've already done so much that me, Ryan, we won't ever accomplish those types of things. No offense, Ryan.